0: Just as we read through in scripture reading this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 20. Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. If you have a a Pew Bible, one of the ones under the chairs, turn to page 810. 810. And that'll take you to Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Professor Pullman was a strict teacher. English 101, one of the first classes that you take in college. He was difficult, purposefully difficult, difficult for difficulty's sake. On the day papers were due, his rule was that all papers needed to be in a neat stack on his desk by 10 a.m., not a minute later. And if you were late, then the late ones were to pl- be placed in a different stack. And that stack was in the trash bin. Failure. One student burst through the doors of the class about five minutes past 10. He was disheveled, backpack hanging off his shoulder, sweat dripping from his brow, a look of panic in his eye, and a paper in his hands. He rushed over to the professor and slowed as he approached. He whispered a sentence or two that ended with, I'm so sorry. He placed his paper on on top of the stack on the desk, and he rushed back to his seat. Professor Pullman waited until the young man got to his seat, took his backpack off, notebook out, pencil out, and he looked up to make eye contact with the professor. The professor slid his paper off the top of the stack, crumbled it into a ball, and tossed it into the trash can. Failure. This is how many view God and His law. They think God is difficult to for difficulty's sake. He requires perfection. He demands perfection from and of His law. And some of His demands seem unrealistic, they say. And when we fail, it seems like God is like Professor Pullman, just staring us down, eager to throw our paper in the trash and say, failure. And here we are, like that student, doing everything we can to just make it. And oh, we were just five minutes late. This couldn't be further from the truth. God's law is good. God's law is for our good. It's not a set of unrealistic expectations in the sense that these are just Ridiculous rules that we must follow, but it is for our good. Obey and be blessed, God tells Israel in the Old Testament. And yet what happens is the same thing that happens to you and I. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each one turning to his own way. We would all rather write our own rules to life than submit to God's good rules. But when we fail, God is not eager to rub it in our face. Rather, He sends a mediator. His Son, who meets the perfect standard that God requires. He meets the law's demands. He fulfills His promises to make a way for sinners like you and I to be forgiven and made righteous before Him. In this next section, Jesus talks about His relationship to the law. He fulfills it and He enforces it, providing a way for lost sinners like you and I to enter into His kingdom covered in His righteousness, not our own. And in that, we are able to walk according to His commandments. Obeying His law from the heart. And so, two points uh, for this message. It starts in verse 17. Point number one, Jesus, the law fulfiller. Jesus, the law fulfiller. Let me read 17 and 18 again. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You'll see in your outline, there are three very important interpretive questions to ask and answer in order To understand this passage. Really to ask and answer in order to understand the whole Sermon on the Mount. This is the part of the sermon where many scholars debate. And there's different interpretations here. But there's three questions that we must ask and answer. The first is what is the law or prophets? In verse 17. And what is the law? In verse 18. Is Jesus talking about the same thing there? Or are they different? Question number two, what does abolish contrasted with fulfilled and accomplished mean? And then question number three, what does Jesus say about his relationship to these things? So three questions that we're going to ask and answer as we go through this text. Question number one, what is the law or the prophets in verse 17 and the law in verse 18 first the law or the prophets verse 17 if you look at other passages in the new testament that mention law and prophets together you'll find that it's always referring to the entire old testament scriptures from genesis to malachi you know the first five books of the bible are called the torah that's the law and the last 17 books of the old testament are called the prophets you have major and minor so when jesus and other new testament authors refer to the law and or the prophets they're referring to the whole hebrew scriptures that's the whole old testament from genesis to malachi so you could interpret verse 17 this way do not think that i've come to abolish The teachings, instruction, and promises of the Old Testament. That is pretty much universally agreed among scholars and commentators, faithful ones. They all say the same thing on that. The second part of this question is where they might differ. Jesus, you'll notice in verse 18, refers only to what? The law. So the question is, is Jesus talking more specifically about only the law And is he kind of doing away with what he said about the prophets in the previous verse? Or is Jesus talking about the same thing? Just kind of using the shorthand law to summarize his reference. What does Jesus mean by only mentioning the law in verse 18? Now, if we look at the rest of the New Testament, there are cases that go both ways. Sometimes uh, New Testament authors will use the shorthand law to refer to the, all of the Old Testament Scriptures and the instructions and promises there within. Other cases where this has happened, Matthew 22, verse 36, Luke chapter 10, verse 26, and there are a few more. So it could refer to the whole Scriptures. And there are other times when the law is used specifically for the Mosaic commands, the law. Moses was the author of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and do you see this in John 7:49, 1 Corinthians 9 verses eight through nine. So which one is it? Is Jesus getting really specific here? or is he still talking about broadly the instruction of the Old Testament? The answer to that question will affect how you interpret these verses and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, to understand Jesus' role in all of this. Look back at what Jesus is saying in verse 18. Let's read it together. He says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus places His personal signature on the perseverance and accomplishment of God's Word. Either He's referring only to the iota and dots of the Old Testament law, or he's referring to every iota, every dot of the entire Old Testament scriptures, the laws and the promises. Which do you think it is? The answer is significant. There are two important cross references that come into play here. The first is in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, specifically, verse 11. Isaiah 55.11 reads, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish. There's that word. That which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the very thing which I sent it. God says through the prophet Isaiah that his word, his word, which includes everything from Genesis to Malachi, will be accomplished. Accomplished it shall succeed. It's incredible how Jesus' words in Matthew 5:18 echo what Isaiah said in Isaiah 55:11. There's another important cross-reference and it's our Easter Sunday text, Luke chapter 24 verse 44. Jesus said to them, "These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything everything written about me in the law of moses and where the prophets and the psalms must be what fulfilled oh does that sound like verse 17 so whether it's covenants laws promises god's word is sure it does not fail we know that from cross-referencing and looking at other Scriptures, and we can guarantee by the testimony of Scripture itself and the testimony of Jesus in Luke 24, that all of it will be fulfilled and accomplished. So with that color and that context, I believe that the shorthand law in verse 18 is a continuation of Jesus' argument in verse 17. That is, that law is shorthand for the Old Testament Scriptures and the instruction and the promises and the law there within. All the promises from the law to the prophets will be fulfilled and accomplished. They will not fail. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from what God has said without it being accomplished. I believe Jesus is referring broadly to the instruction of Scripture in the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament. Question number two. What does abolish contrasted with fulfilled and accomplished mean? Well, the word for abolish could also be translated to destroy or to tear down. Jesus says it twice. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. Did he need to say it twice? No, but he repeats it for emphasis. He's emphasizing something here. He says, listen, I'm not wadding it up and throwing it into the trash. I'm not doing away with it. No doubt the religious leaders of this time, they were suspicious of Jesus and His teaching. They maybe even accused Jesus of doing this very thing. Oh, He's doing away with the law. He's doing away with all that Old Testament instruction that we're all following. It seemed to them that way. They were threatened by His authority. They were threatened by His influence and His teaching. They were claiming that He was trying to usurp the writings of Moses and the other prophets. Jesus emphatically says, that's not true. I did not come to abolish it. In fact, on the contrary, Jesus uses a strong contrast here. A strong contrast here, and it says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The opposite is true. What does to fulfill mean? To fulfill means to fill up or to bring to completion. Bring to completion. He further specifies in verse 18, he says, Until heaven and earth pass away. In other words, until the end of time, before the end of the universe as we know it, not an iota, not a dot will pass away. What what is the iota and the dot? That's what we have in the ESV translation. In the New American Standard Version, they have uh, the smallest letter or stroke is the translation of those two words. And then in the NKJV, you've got the jot and the tittle. What are these things? Let's look first at the iota. The iota iota referring to probably the yod, which is the smallest letter in the Aramaic Hebrew alphabet. Very small little mark there. Hebrew letter. Now the dot. The dot, or the tittle, referring to the small serif, that little stroke on the letter. That distinguishes it from another letter. We have this in English the O and the Q. What separates the O and the Q in the English language? The kickstand, right? The tittle, the dot, the little stroke there. And that's significant, right? And so I think the NASB translation is most helpful here. Not the smallest letter. Nor the smallest stroke from your Bibles will pass. Now the word pass is the opposite of arrive. It means it's been lost. It it doesn't arrive. It was missed. So those little things will not be missed. They will not pass from the Old Testament Scriptures until all is accomplished. Now this word for accomplished is the same word also translated to be born. Or to come about. Think about when a baby arrives. It happens. Right? Birth and the child arrives. It it happens. You're following me here? We don't need to explain it any further. When referring to events, this word means that what has been promised or what is expected will take place. It happens. So, Let's put it all together, using different language to try to understand what Jesus is saying here. The Scriptures will not be destroyed, emphatically. Rather, they will be brought to completion. Before the end of the universe, not the smallest letter nor stroke will be missed. Not one will be lost. But everything promised in the Scriptures will take place. Place. They will happen. In other words, again, Isaiah 55.11, the Word of God will not return empty. It shall accomplish every purpose and will succeed in everything for which it was sent. God's Word is sure. The promises will happen. The covenants will be fulfilled. The shadows of the law, the priesthood, the whole sacrificial system will be brought to completion. Finally, and this is the most significant part of this passage, the third question, what is Jesus' relationship to these things? What does Jesus have to do with the Word of God being accomplished, the Word of God being fulfilled? Here is the main point. Let's reread through the text and notice the emphasis Notice who takes the responsibility upon himself to make sure these things happen. Verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to, what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. When Jesus says, for truly I say to you, that's his signature. That's his stamp. You, and in other words, he's saying, you can bank on me. You can hang your hat on this truth. I will ensure that nothing passes away until all is accomplished. The parallels between Luke 24-44 and Matthew 5, 17-18 are strong. And they're helpful for us. I believe Jesus is making the same point. Verse 17 I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I came to bring it to completion. Verse 18, hang your hat on my words until the end of time. Not a letter or a stroke of the Scriptures will be missed until everything that was promised will take place. Signed, Jesus Christ. What a statement Jesus is making in these two verses. Here's what He's doing. Jesus puts all of the Old Testament covenants, the promises, the types and the shadows of the law, the priesthood, the whole sacrificial system on his own back. And he makes sure that it happens. He is the scripture fulfiller. And that's good news. That's incredible news. The promises of God, including our salvation, including atonement for sinners like you and I, the resurrection of believers, the kingdom come. It's not dependent upon us. He puts it all on His back. And if it's all on His back, then it's going to happen. We can bank on it. He makes sure of it. Christian, the troubles of your life are small in comparison to the glory and the goodness of the Savior Jesus Christ. God's redemptive plan is on His back. All glory be to Jesus Christ our King, the Scripture Fulfiller. It's amazing, this truth. Of course, we know that many of the Old Testament laws and promises were brought to completion in Jesus' first coming. Jesus, the great high priest, he brought the whole sacrificial system into, to completion, in a sense, by making the ultimate sacrifice. We're no longer required like they were in the Old Testament to bring our goats, our bulls, to the altar to put our hands on their heads and to cut their throats so that we can atone for our sins. We don't need to do that anymore. Jesus was the perfect Lamb. The perfect sacrifice. Who made a sacrifice once for all for sinners like you and I. He brings that sacrificial system, the law to completion. The ceremonial law Jesus was born of the line of David. He fulfilled that promise. Jesus lived a perfect life of perfect obedience to God's law, fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus took the good news of the kingdom to the Gentiles of Galilee. Remember, He goes out to the region of Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles. That was promised, and He fulfilled it. Jesus was pierced. And He suffered for our transgressions according to Isaiah 53. He rose from the dead. Sheol could not hold Him. And He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110. So much was fulfilled and accomplished in Jesus' first coming. And yet, there's still more to come. And Jesus has those promises on His back as well. He ensures that they will come to pass. They will be brought to completion. Like... I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Here we are this Sunday gathering as a church. Just one of the local churches. A part of God's universal body. He promised and ensured that there would be judgment for His enemies and He will bring that to pass. He will bring an end to death and misery. He will raise us from the dead with a glorified body that can never die, and He will bring about a future kingdom for His people. Those promises are not on your backs. They're on Christ's. He will ensure they're accomplished. And that's good news for us today. That's really good news, that Jesus takes those upon Himself personally to ensure that all of these things happen Jesus is the law fulfiller. He's the law fulfiller. Point number two. Jesus is the law enforcer. He's the law enforcer. Not only is Jesus the law fulfiller, but He enforces the law. Look at verse 19. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says something very similar later in the sermon. I believe here referring back again to the commands, the principles, the instruction of the Old Testament. But Jesus adds something in a sense to that in Matthew 7.24 later in the sermon. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of Mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of Mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. What is Jesus doing there? He's putting His words on the same level of Scripture. The same pedestal. This is the Word of God. Take it seriously. Come under it. You need to obey the commands of Scripture. Moses promised in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 18 that a future prophet would come and that we should heed the words of his instruction. 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, you'd be of Israel, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. Listen to me, Jesus says, and do these words of mine. He says in verse 18, I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, the priest and king, God in the flesh. And now, he ascends the mountain to get the commands of God and bring them down to his people. You and I. He calls us to listen, to obey, and to teach his unfailing word. Much of the law, specifically the ceremonial and the civil law, has been brought to completion in the sacrifice of Christ. But we still have a moral law from the Old Testament that Jesus reinforces in the Sermon on the Mount. He addresses murder, he addresses adultery. But says, "Hey, it's not just on the outside." He says, "The moral law requires your heart it should be obeyed from the heart, from the inside." And Jesus is going to further explain that in the next section here as we get to that. Look back at verse nineteen. He says, "Whoever relaxes." This word "relax" is actually has the same Greek word or uh, root as the word "abolish" in verse seventeen. So to relax is to loosen or to destroy or to nullify. Kind of throw these things aside and say, ah, this doesn't matter. And it's interesting that Jesus would add, if you destroy or relax even the least of these commandments, Jesus is kind of playing towards the Pharisees' language here. This is how Pharisees would um, describe the commandments. There are really important ones, and then there are, well, not so important ones. They were notorious commandment reorganizers. They had power rankings. You can imagine them looking at a board going, yeah, these commandments are important. We'll just say these are less important, the least of these commandments. Jesus says, if you relax even the least of the commandments, God will make least of you in his kingdom. He's addressing those who, would, who might devalue or diminish or disregard God's word. May we never be so. May we never be like the Pharisees. And Jesus condemns them for this. In Matthew 23, he says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites!' You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Your rankings are are flipped upside down. You made the least important commandments according to God, most important in your mind, and you decided that which is most important to God or the weightier matters were less important. It was a hermeneutic of convenience. Hermeneutic, the way you translate or interpret the Scriptures, sorry. It was a hermeneutic of convenience. I'm going I'm to take what's convenient for me and I'll apply that to my life. I'm going to disregard those things that make me uncomfortable or that are unconvenient. That's what the Pharisees did. And Jesus says, don't do that. If you disregard, if you devalue, if you diminish any of my commandments, the ones that endure today, especially of the moral law, those that apply still today to our hearts, then you will be devalued. You will be diminished. You will be disregarded in the kingdom. This affects your reward in heaven. Faithfulness to God's Word will be rewarded in the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about this. Whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Who's the judge? Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Yes, your life matters. Your life matters. Obedience matters. Your submission to God's Word matters, Christian. Even though you're justified, even though you've been made righteous by God through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, you are still called by Jesus Christ Himself to walk according to His commandments, to the law. Not just on the outside, but from a changed heart from the inside. true heart-motivated obedience. We're always going to be tempted to compromise. We're always going to be tempted to rearrange God's Word, to pick and choose that thing that we like, and, and to throw away or do away with the little things or the lesser things that we don't like. And it's all for our own personal comforts or opinions. Don't be tempted to think that there are respectable sins that we don't need to repent of, and then there's really serious sins that we need to take seriously. Let's not be tempted to take parts of Scripture as inspired and profitable for us and then say, ah, that's not as important to the other parts. The moment that you elevate your opinion or man's opinion above the Scriptures, you put yourself in the seat of the Pharisee who did the same thing. Live your life under the book, submitting to every word, Not above it. Deciding the parts that you like and don't like. Jesus enforces the commands by saying, make sure that you don't relax even one of these commandments, but that you walk in obedience to them. Point number three. I told you there are two points. I'm adding a third. It's not on your outline. but It's really important. It has to do with verse 20. Here's the third point. Me, the lawbreaker. Me, the lawbreaker. Verse 20 is both the conclusion of this section and a transition into the next. Jesus just defined His relationship to the law. He's the law fulfiller. And He's the law enforcer. Now, He defines our relationship to the law by showing us just how short we fall. Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a shocking statement. For the average Jew in the audience, this seems absurd. Absurd. The scribes and the Pharisees were seen as the ultimate law followers. The best of the best. The goody two-shoes in the religious schools. The standard set by those guys was very high. And now Jesus moves the bar higher. It says, unless your righteousness is up here, above theirs, you cannot enter the kingdom." Jesus is going to, in the next section, show us explicitly what he means by that. That is that the scribes and the Pharisees looked really good on the outside, but on the inside were desperate sinners against God. Filthy, just like all of us. Jesus shows that outward adherence to the law is not the righteous requirement, but inward adherence from the heart. But what we need to understand now, just with this statement, is the shock value. Is that by saying your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus sets the bar to an impossible height? The appropriate response at this statement is this: if they fall short, then I fall short. If they failed the law, then I failed the law. We've all failed the law. I am not righteous. I'm not righteous. This is similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. He says, what then? Are the Jews any better off? off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. It says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth is stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We're all lawbreakers. We've all fallen short of the glory of God we've sinned. Romans 3.23 James 2.10 says, If you keep the whole law, Yet stumble at one point, you're guilty of it all. We're all guilty. We all fail underneath God's perfect standard of righteousness. You've got to understand that. No one has this kind of righteousness in and of themselves. So why does Jesus give us this statement? Why does Jesus set the bar so high so as to essentially say, yeah, none of us can jump that high. How is it that anybody could enter the kingdom of heaven? This verse functions like a neon light arrow flashing and pointing back at Jesus, the only one righteous, the only one who fulfilled all righteousness, the law fulfiller. It points us back to the king. This kind of righteousness is not earned by any man. Not the scribes, the Pharisees, not you and I. This kind of righteousness only comes from God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who walked in perfect obedience. He fulfilled all righteousness, Matthew 3.15 says. He was the one who was tempted in every way, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He's the one who covers us in His robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61. This verse humbles us and brings us to a place of brokenness, yet also points us to the hope. Jesus Christ, the only one righteous. Only those then, covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is received by faith, can enter His kingdom. We walk into His kingdom. Everyone who walks into His kingdom wears His robe. The question for you is, do you have His robe? Are you covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Do you have faith in Him, in Him alone? Do you believe that He is the only way for you to be saved? Or you have this kind of misconstrued idea that somehow you could still fulfill the law. Somehow you could still make it on your own. Good luck. The bar's way up there. No man has jumped it except for one. His name is Jesus. Trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, today. Trust in him to have his righteousness cover you so that you may enter his kingdom. Submit to His Word. See that He is the promised One that has come to accomplish our salvation. And trust in Him and Him alone for it. No one else. Not even yourself. Believe in Jesus today to be covered in His robe. To be washed. To be cleaned. And to be saved. Have you received Jesus Christ? are you donning the king's robe? Exchange your filthy rags for His righteousness by repenting of your sins and trusting in Him by faith. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that the promises in Your Word do not depend on me. But they rest on the shoulders of a great champion and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hold fast to Christ today, God, and thank You for sending such a sweet and glorious and loving Savior who came to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty that we should have paid, but He paid it upon Himself. He that our sins were imputed, placed upon Him, and in a great exchange, He imputes and places His righteousness upon us, covering us in His robes. He died on the cross and He rose again from the dead. So that we can die to sin, we can repent of it and turn and have new life in Jesus Christ. I pray that every person in this room would believe that today. Today. They would entrust themselves, surrender to a good Savior, the Scripture fulfiller, and the Scripture Enforcer. Help us, God, to take your word seriously and to walk into obedience, or walk in obedience to it in every aspect of our lives, to live a life wholly surrendered to you and your word. Help us to grow in those ways. In Jesus' name.